and welcome to this second talk on the background to the New Testament. In the first talk we looked at something with the physical geography of the land of Israel, its climate, how they grew their food and what food they ate. We considered the eight Roman emperors who were in Rome at the time of the New Testament, the three Roman governors who were mentioned by name, and Pontius Pilate, we spent some time on his life and career, and we considered the horrible Herods who were ruling parts of the Holy Land in our Lord's time. I'd like now to move on to the Sanhedrin. And if you look at photograph number one, you will see there a picture of how the Sanhedrin may have looked in those days. It was the parliament of the Jews. There were 71 members, and the chief member was the high priest, who was the, the speaker. The Sanhedrin had no authority in Galilee. That's why the disciples were worried in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, when Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. By going to Jerusalem, he was placing himself within the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin could pass a sentence of death, but under Roman rule, that sentence had to be ratified by the local governor in this case, Pontius Pilate. The Sadducees in the Sanhedrin set it, led it, but the Pharisees set the tone. And there were three main parties sitting there. So let me talk first about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the aristocracy of the day. They were rich, they were powerful, they were priests. Their leader was the chief priest. The high priest was recognised by the Romans as the Prime Minister of Israel. The Romans had actually removed the authentic high priest, whose name was Annas, and had installed his son-in-law Caiaphas as the replacement high priest. So just as Catholics have two living popes, at the time of our Lord, the Jews had two living high priests. The Sadducees cooperated with the Romans. They liked the status quo because maintaining the status quo meant maintaining their privileged position. They lived off the taxes of the temple and the tithes the Jews brought to it. They were lordly and unpopular with the people. And theologically, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, not the 39 books, but only five, the five books of Moses. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't even believe in a future judgment or in angels or demons. And that's why they tried to catch Jesus out with a trick question. They said, there's this woman and she unfortunately was married seven times and all her husbands died. So in the resurrection, who's she going to be married to? Ha, 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 meaning it's a trick question, Jesus. You can't get out of that one. Paul used a division between the Sadducees and the Pharisees when he was in the Sanhedrin court in Acts chapter 23. And he said, well, I'm here because I believe in the resurrection. And so do these Pharisees. And so the Sadducees started arguing, saying, well, we don't. And uh, the court case was diverted by Paul in that way. Let's turn then to the second group in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. They were the separated ones, which is what that word means, because between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Greeks had invaded Israel and Hellenized it. They brought in all their pagan practices into the Holy Land. And people like these Sadducees had cooperated because it meant wealth and power for them. But the Pharisees said, no, 
we're going to cut ourselves off from pagans, we're going to have nothing to do with these Greeks or later the Romans, we are going to live strictly by the laws of God, all the 39 books of the Old Testament. They believed in life after death, resurrection, future judgment, angels and demons, but they also added to all of that teachings from their rabbis over the years. This was known as the tradition of the elders. And Jesus had harsh things to say about the tradition of the elders. There are three Pharisees in the New Testament of interest to us. There was Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. There was Gamaliel who in Acts chapter 5, when the Sanhedrin were considering what to do with the imprisoned disciples, Gamaliel said, if their purpose is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And then Saul, Saul of Tarsus, the converted Pharisee, features highly in our New Testament. The third party in the Sanhedrin were the scribes, also known as lawyers. It was their job to copy the sacred texts of the Old Testament. And in so doing, they became authoritative teachers and interpreters of the sacred books. There were scribes all over Israel and their power base was in the synagogues. It was a lawyer or a scribe, remember, who came to Jesus and said, well, how can I gain eternal life? And then he said, well, OK, who is my neighbour? And Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. The, the best leading scribes were doctors of the law, and they taught in Jerusalem. Remember when Jesus was 12 years old, he was debating with the doctors of the law in Jerusalem. And they will be addressed as Rabbi, my master, or Rabboni, my great master. And remember in John chapter 20, when Mary Magdalene found the risen Lord, she addressed him as Rabboni, my great master. Well, let's turn from the upper class people, so to speak. Let's turn to the ordinary people of Palestine in those days. They were working class. They lived in villages. They led hard, simple lives. Farm laborers, carpenters, weavers, potters, shepherds. They wore simple tunics of linen tightened with a belt and cotton underclothes. You tucked your tunic into your belt to do manual work which is why in 1 Peter chapter 1, he tells us to gird up our loins. In other words, to tuck our clothes up into our belt, translated by the NIV as prepare your minds for action. You may remember that John the Baptist wore a coat of camel hair. Your coat was important because it also doubled up as a blanket at night. On your head, you wore a simple square cloth to protect your head and neck from the sun. And on your feet, you had simple leather sandals held to the feet by a leather thong. And John the Baptist said he wasn't worthy to undo the leather thong on the sandals of the Messiah. If you look at the next picture, you will see there pictures of phylacteries. Now, these were little boxes, cubic boxes, which were strapped, one to your forehead and one to your left arm. And then one was nailed to the doorpost of your house. And each of these boxes contained a little piece of parchment with a Shema on it. The Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So the idea was that the law of God should control everything you thought, the law of God should control everything you did, and the law of God should govern everything that went on in your house. 
So if you look at the next photo, we'll about the houses of the ordinary people. Ordinary people lived in one-roomed houses constructed from wooden beams with mud and straw comprising the walls whitewashed. Outside was a staircase which led to a flat roof. And you remember the story of the paralyzed man who was carried up the outside staircase to the roof and then they broke up the brushwood overlaid, uh, the brushwood overlaid with clay and they broke through and lowered their friend to Jesus. The roof was used in the same way as we use our back garden. So you go up there to gossip with the neighbours, to pass on news, to dry your washing. You might do some cooking up there. You might leave fruit up there to ripen and bread to leaven. You might have a feast up there. There will be music and dancing up there on the flat roof of your house. The wooden framework of the house would have been built by a carpenter. And as you know, Jesus was a carpenter. So as well as being a maker of furniture and farm implements and plows and yokes and chests and stools and cradles, Jesus would have built doors and roof beams and stout posts to form the framework of a house. Often he would have been paid in kind, corn, wine or oil, rather than in currency. The house consisted of one room and at the end of it was a raised platform where the family would sleep. They'd sleep on mats, fully clothed. The floor, the lower floor, was simply of mud and at night time the family would bring the animals in for the night. So inside the house at night there might be a donkey, a goat, chickens and so on. They would sleep on the main floor, the family sleeping on the platform. So you remember the parable of the friend at midnight who came knocking on the door. <clears throat> I've got a friend visiting me, I need some food, can you get up please and help me? And the man from inside said, I'm not getting up because I'll have to disturb everybody, including the animals, if I do. They didn't have much furniture. Uh, they probably had a chest for family treasures, including the woman's wedding dress, which would be subject to moths. And Jesus talked about moths, decaying clothes that were kept in such um, a chest. An oil lamp would burn in the house day and night because it had no windows and they didn't want it to go out because if your oil lamp went out, how are you going to relight it? There were no matches, of course, in those days. It would be kept in a niche in a wall or on a lampstand. And one thing you never did was to cover <clears throat> a, a, a burning lamp with a bushel or something like a bucket. The houses were stuffy and ill-lit and in summer they were infested with insects. If you'd look at the next picture, I'd like to talk to you about fishing, because a number of Jesus' followers were fisher people, as you know. One form of fishing was by line and hook. And in Matthew 17, when Jesus sent Peter to catch a fish with money in its mouth, Peter used a line and hook method. But another method was a cast net. And when the disciples were called by Jesus to follow him, they were using or cleaning their cast nets. The fisherman would wade into the water, whirl over his head, his um, circular net, throw it into the water, weights on the edges would make it sink, and then he would pull it in, uh, gathering all the surprised fish in its mesh. Another form of fishing was with a drag net. This would be a huge net, as much as 500 metres long, and it would be drawn out between two boats, between the two boats and the men on the shore and they would lower it into the water 
and then the boat would be sailed back to the shore and the net would be pulled into the shore, gathering in all the fish on the way. And Jesus told a parable about a dragnet in Matthew chapter 13. Well, in talking about fishing, I'm talking about making a living. So that brings me on to the subject of the economy. Taxation. The poor Jews were taxed five times over. There were two Roman taxes. Every Jew had to pay a 25% tax on what his land produced. We might call that income tax. And then every Jew had to pay tax on his money, depending on his wealth. We might call that a poll tax. Every five years, the right to collect taxes from the public, that's where the word publicans comes from, the right to collect taxes from the public was auctioned off in Rome to the highest bidder. And Zacchaeus was such a man. He, wasn't just, he was a chief tax collector, so he employed tax collectors under him. Such a, a local tax collector was Matthew, who was called by Jesus to be a follower. People hated these tax collectors because they were Jewish, but they cooperated with the Romans and they were greedy and they were dishonest. Now, on top of those two forms of taxes, the Jews had to pay their own temple taxes. The temple tax itself was payable each year before Passover. And this cost a didrachma in Greek money or a half shekel in Hebrew money, equal to two days wages. That's what Peter caught in the fish's mouth. Then there was the tithe, which Jews had to pay on everything which they grew, whether it was a crop such as uh, herbs or or, or wheat or barley, or whether it's an animal such as lambs or, or, or kids from goats or, or eggs even, you had to take one-tenth to the temple authorities, that is to say the Sadducees who lived on the fat of the land. And then when you grew something, when it was a new crop, you had to bring the first fruits to the temple again. Barley, wheat, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, honey, all the first fruits had to be paid to the temple authorities. So they were being taxed five times over. If you look at picture 11, you'll see a picture there of the most common Roman coin, which was the denarius. This silver denarius was worth one day's pay to a working man. Remember the parable of the laborers in the vineyard who worked unequal hours, but all received one day's pay, one denarius at the end. And when Jesus asked to look at a coin when he was challenged about paying taxes to Caesar, he was given a denarius. And on it would have been written, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, with his head wreathed in a laurel. And on the reverse side, it would have said chief pontiff, meaning high priest. So these denarius were idols to the Jews. The Jews regarded them as being untouchable, they would avoid them whenever they could because they were paying tribute to a Roman god, Augustus. The nearest Greek coin to the denarius was the drachma, and the coin which the woman lost in Luke chapter 15 would have been a didrachma. When Jesus betrayed Jesus for 30 silver coins, they were probably tetra drachmas. There were no banks, so the safest place to keep your money was a hole in the ground. Only the digger would know where their treasure was hidden. And Jesus told a parable about someone who stumbled across treasure found hidden in a field. 
Now, as to the value of these currencies, well, the denarius or the drachma was equal to one day's pay. One shekel was worth four drachmas or four denarius, four days pay. Now, depending on which translation you used in Luke's gospel, you might read the parable of the mina or the parable of the pounds. Now, a mina or a pound was worth 25 shekels. That is to say, 100 days pay. And then Jesus, in another gospel, told the parable of the talents. And a talent was worth 1,500 shekels. That is over four years pay. 30 kilograms of silver. So when Jesus told that parable of the man who gave, uh, the rich man who gave five talents to his servants to go and invest, that five talents was worth 20 years pay. In other words, deliberate that Jesus is exaggerating the amount of money being lent to these people. Now, nothing is more expensive in life than getting married. So let me talk to you now about marriage. Marriage in Bible days was a business transaction rather than a love match. All being well, love would follow the wedding rather than precede it. The marriages were arranged by the parents who agreed financial terms. So the father of the bridegroom would pay money to the bride's family to compensate them for the loss of her labour and give them presents. That giving of gifts was the beginning of the betrothal. And from the betrothal, the couple were called man and wife, and to end it, a divorce would be necessary. Matthew chapter 1, you remember Joseph were considering divorcing Mary, even though they weren't yet married. They were just in that year of betrothment. If he died, then Mary would have been regarded as a widow. Mary would have been about 14 when she was betrothed to Joseph, and probably about 15 when she gave birth to Jesus. There was no courtship. There was a one-year engagement, followed by a week of wedding celebrations. Dressed in their best, the, bride, the bridegroom and his best man, remember John the Baptist, John chapter 3, described himself as the Messiah's best man. The bridegroom, the best man and his friends would sit out in the evening for the bride's house, where she would be waiting, beautifully dressed and veiled with her bridesmaids. And Jesus told a story about ten bridesmaids five of whom weren't ready with their lamps oiled for the procession back to the bridegroom's house in the evening. Brides usually dressed in white uh, with embroidery and jewellery. And then the group, the whole group, would return to the man's house with singing and music and dancing on the way. And there would be feasting, which would last for seven days. There was no overtly religious element to a wedding. Now, all being well, the wedding will result within some months in the birth of a baby. And a new baby would be washed and then rubbed in salt and then placed on diagonally onto a square cloth, which was folded around the baby. And then the baby was wrapped up in strips of cloth, rather like our roller bandages. So the baby looked like a, a red Indian papoose. The hands were trapped inside the idea was that the limbs would grow straight. The mother was regarded as being ritually unclean for 40 days in the birth of a boy and 80 days in the case of a girl. And then a sacrifice had to be brought to the temple to be offered. 
and Joseph and Mary could only afford two birds showing their poverty. The baby would often sleep in the animal's food trough, the manger. When out, the baby would be carried on the mother's back and there was no special food for babies as they were breastfed for two or three years. On the eighth day of his life, the father would bring a boy to be circumcised and be named. And it was customary to give a boy the name of his grandfather, especially if that grandfather had passed away. There are no surnames. So children were known as Ben, or boys were known as Ben, son of. So Jesus would have been Jesus, son of Joseph. A firstborn son, as Jesus was, was deemed to belong to God in a special way and had to be redeemed with five shekels. So it's an interesting thought that Mary and Joseph had to bring Jesus to the temple to redeem the Redeemer with five shekels. Now, if you look at the next <clears throat> photograph, I need to turn to the subject of dying. Due to the hot climate of Israel, funerals usually took place on the same day as the person died. They didn't use coffins, they didn't embalm, they didn't cremate. They would wash the corpse, sprinkle it with perfume or oil, bind the head up with a napkin and wrap the body in strips of linen with spices enclosed. And you can read all about that in John's Gospel, chapters 19 and 20. Sometimes at funerals, professional mourners were employed. And you remember that Jesus had to send away the professional mourners when he was about to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. Burial grounds were usually outside a, tomb, a town, and some rich people had family tombs or prepared for their own burial later. And there you can see a diagram in that photograph of a, a rich person's tomb with the inner room for the corpse, uh, the slightly outer room for the mourners and the stone in front to close off the tomb eventually. Joseph of Arimathea had prepared such a tomb for himself and he lent it to Jesus. He thought for the rest of forever, but Jesus only needed it for three days because he rose from the dead on Easter day. Finally, let's say a little bit about synagogues where most Jews worshiped because there was one, only one temple in Jerusalem, but there were hundreds and hundreds of synagogues around. Indeed, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, it is said that in that one city alone, there were 480 synagogues which had to be destroyed. There were thousands throughout the empire. They were used for worship. They were used as schools. They were used as a meeting place to settle local affairs. And the elders had disciplinary powers to excommunicate members or even to whip them. I wonder if your pastor would appreciate that power being restored. You may remember that Jairus was an elder of the synagogue, a man who had this sort of authority. Worship services consisted of the reading and the explaining of the law, the Torah, Moses' teachings, reciting the creed, the Shema, hymns and prayers. And any male, especially a visitor, could be asked to read the scriptures and speak to the people. And Jesus was in Luke chapter 4, where he said prophecies from Isaiah were being fulfilled there and then in their hearing. And it's what Paul did. He would always go to a synagogue on a Saturday and use that opportunity to preach the gospel when he was invited to speak. I said that synagogues were used as schools, 
Boys were sent to school in the synagogue from the age of five to the age of 13. And if you look at the last photograph, you will see there the name of Jesus as he would have been taught to write it in the Hebrew language. It says Yeshua. Yeshua in the Greek New Testament comes across as Jesus, which comes across in English as Jesus. But the name that Jesus was probably called by Mary in the days of his flesh here on the earth is Yeshua. And so we praise God for our Saviour. So today we've recapped, uh, sorry, today we've considered the Sanhedrin and how it's comprised. We've looked at the three parties which made it up. We've looked at the ordinary people, their clothes, their houses, how they fished, how they were taxed, the coins they used in, in their marketplaces, how they got married, how they looked after their babies, how they dealt with the dead, and how they used their synagogues. So praise God for Jesus, Jesus, Yeshua, our Lord and Saviour, who lived in those days. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.